Good morning, everyone. You're very welcome to our annual Financial Services Spring Briefing. Now, we've got a great lineup today, and I'm delighted to say they see such a massive turnout online this morning. I've just been told before I came in that we've had record attendance for our Spring Briefing. So hopefully we'll have a really interesting discussion in the next hour or so. Now, for those of you that have been with us for previous Spring Briefings will know, the object is to both review the current economic conditions and also to hear some updates on recent legal developments that might be relevant to you and your business for the year ahead. Now, when we think of the Irish economy from 2022, the word that comes to mind is probably volatility, Ireland being a small, open economy, etc. In fact, if you look back to our spring briefing from 2022, this time last year, that was the main thing. But let's just put that in context for one second. One week to the day after last year's session in February, the war in Ukraine broke out, since then, Ireland has experienced significant spikes in inflation and serious interest rate increases. We had and continue to have a housing crisis. We have and continue to have a cost of living crisis. In fact, just this week, you will have seen the government's latest set of measures to try to work to assist with this. The UK is not much better. In 2022, we saw, I think, two monarchs, three prime ministers and mass industrial unrest, which continues to this day. I could go on and on, but I think the point is that volatility is a fair assessment of the 2022 economy. But the story so far for Ireland in 2023 appears to be a little bit more upbeat. Um, the relative performance of the Irish government bonds suggests that we're outperforming the EU. Rejections at energy prices are more positive, as are the indicators on inflation. So the question I really have today is, are we in for soft landing or indeed more volatility for the rest of 2023? To help us unpack all of this, I'm delighted to say we're joined again by Seamus Coffey, a lecturer in economics in the University College Cork, and also the former chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. Nobody better than Seamus to take us through where we stand in the Irish context. I'm also really, really looking forward to hearing Seamus' thoughts this morning. But before that, I'm delighted to welcome back Rowena Fitzgerald, the co-head of our financial regulation team. Rowena's going to give us an overview of the main financial services regulatory updates from 2022, but importantly, will also give us an insight into what the CBI is going to focus on in 2023. Also joining us this morning, I'm delighted to see Irene Nicarty taking some time out from her busy practice. Now, some of you will know Irene in connection with her expertise in the area of non-performing loans and all things credit servicing uh, related. She'll share her views on the latest EU credit servicing directive, which has caused a lot of discussion in NPL circles, particularly given that it's in a consultation phase. Now, as always, we have a Q&A session at the end, so please feel free to use the Q&A tool on Zoom, and I'll try to get to as many of your questions as possible for Seamus, or indeed, we may have one or two for Rowena or Irene. But for the minute, I'll hand you over to Rowena. Great, thanks very much, Neil, and good morning, everyone. Um, as Neil said, I'm co-head of our financial services regulation practice in MHC, and why the economic climate is hugely significant for all firms regulated financial services providers also have to take account of the regulatory climate. So we thought it would be useful to take a quick look at some of the key economic points, or sorry, some of the key regulatory points from last year, and then take a look at, you know, what might be coming down the tracks this year before Seamus takes us through some of the key economic trends. Um, this is by no means exhaustive, but it just serves to highlight some of the, the key areas and developments as we saw them. So looking at our first slide, in 2022, the central bank's general common focus for all regulated entities continues to be consumer protection. There is no surprises there. 
In March, the Central Bank published its Consumer Protection Outlook report. And as part of that report, the Central Bank took over 145 risks that it identified on a cross-industry assessment exercise it, took, it, it, it carried out. And then it broke those down into five key cross-sectorial risks. And they included poor business practices and processes, ineffective disclosures to consumers, the changing operation landscape, technology-driven risks, and the impact of shifting business models. And just to mention, the Central Bank expected firms to take action on both of that report and to take stock of those risks and to consider them within their business. Turning to our next slide and sticking with the consumer protection focus, in November, the Central Bank wrote all regulated firms reaffirming its expectations on how to treat cons consumers in the context of the current economic climate. The, the letter itself set out a number of specific steps that firms were expected to take in the areas of affordability and sustainability. So for those of you in the audience providing credit, you have to ensure that that credit is affordable. Um, firms have to be able to identify customers in vulnerable circumstances, including financial difficulty, and then provide them with the appropriate supports. And then for those of you in the audience who might be advising on savings and investments, you have to consider both the short and the long-term needs of the consumer. And that should factor in um, things like anticipated increases in the day-to-day -day costs that consumers face, as well as costs that the, that the consumer may not anticipate themselves. So obviously that, that's hugely challenging. Um, the, the Dear CEO letter also set out steps that central bank expected firms to take around providing clear and relevant autonomy information to consumers, ensuring effective operation capacity within their businesses, and it notes that firms should have robust sales and product governance arrangements in place as well. And just to mention, actually, as well, earlier in the year, we did have, um, in April, we had a dear CEO letter that was specifically aimed at just the retail banking sector. And in that letter, again, the central bank reinforced its consumer protection expectations, requiring that banks have sufficient plans, resources in place to respond to the migration of accounts. Um, and obviously, that's in the context of Ulster Bank and KBC leaving the market. Looking at our next slide, and just a few other areas to note. So for insurers in the audience, we had the ban on insurance price walking in 2022. That came into effect so that private car and home insurers can charge consumers who run their second or their subsequent renewals a premium that will be higher than what they would have been charged if they were at a one-year renewal point in, in time in terms of, of their, their, their insurance contract. We also had an obvious focus on financial sanctions with the, the war in Ukraine ongoing, and there's numerous updates from the central bank around the, the changing regulations penalizing Russia. We saw the publication of the central bank individual accountability framework bill. Um, that draft legislation is currently making its way through the Shannon, so we should have that new piece of legislation coming into effect sooner rather than later. And we also saw some of the most significant fines being imposed as part of the tracker mortgage examination. And Turn to our next slide. I think it's worth pausing on um, the scale of those fines for a few moments because I think they serve as a good reminder that the regulator does actually have teeth. Um, so as part of the, the fallout from the tracker launch examination in June, we saw that ESB was fined over 13 million, AIB was fined over 83 million, and then just in September, Bank of Ireland was fined a record high of over 100 million for, for its failings. Um, Pursuant to the tracker mortgage examination. So they're quite significant fines. We did have other enforcement actions as well. And maybe just to touch on a couple of those, you'd see they're, they're, they're listed there in the slide, but um, BNY, BNY Mellon was fined nearly 11 million for failings relating to outsourcing. Uh, AXA Life was fined 3.6 million for failings relating to corporate governance and conflicts of interest. And significantly, Danske Bank 
a non-Irish bank was fined 1.8 million for anti-money laundering and counter-financing terrorism breaches by its Irish branch. So that's a new departure from the central bank where they actually focused on the branch of another EU entity, uh, their branch in Ireland. That, that's a new departure. And while overall in 2022, we only saw eight concluded enforcement actions, the total amount to be paid to the exchequer on foot of those came in at over 213 million, which is um, a record high for, for the central bank. Looking at our next slide and looking at what we can expect in 2023, again, there's always plenty in store for regulated entities and of relevance for most firms will be the central bank's review of the consumer protection code. That's ongoing at the moment. So that's going to be broken into three phases. We have phase one, which is ongoing right now, and that's going to run until the end of March. And that's the discussion paper phase where the central bank is looking to obtain feedback and views from consumers and stakeholders on key discussion topics before proposed revisions are actually published. Phase two, then we have a public consultation on the actual proposals um, for the new consumer framework, and they should be accompanied by draft regulations as well. And then we have phase three, which will be the actual finalization of the framework and its rollout. And that's expected to take place in 2024. Then looking at our next slide, we'll have our, we have our supervisory priorities for this year. So last month um, in January, the Central Bank wrote to the Minister of Finance outlining its supervisory regulatory priorities for the year. And then there was follow-up with the Dear CEO letter to all regulated firms um, only last Thursday. So many of the priorities generally align with last year's priority because Central Bank has also said that the economic context will be central to its regulatory focus this year as well. And before I, I launch into the priorities themselves, just a reminder, firms should bring these, these priorities to the attention of their boards and build them into their compliance frameworks. And I'd recommend bringing both the a letter from the governor to the minister for finance, as well as the dear CEO letter um, to the attention of your boards, because the, they should be read in conjunction and probably the letter from the central bank to the minister for finance probably gives a bit more colour. Um, if we look at the, the priorities as outlined in the dear CEO letter, so the central bank says that it wants to provide a clear and open and transparent authorization for process for firms, that I think that'll be welcomed by everybody. Um, it's going to focus on assessing and managing risks to the, the financial and operational resilience of firms. It's going to progress actions on systemic risks, risks generated by non-banks. It says it's going to oversee the consolidation of the banking sector. It's going to consult and engage on various regulatory advances, like I mentioned, the Consumer Protection Code and the Individual Accountability Framework. There is going to be changes to the credit union sector. Um, the central bank also says it wants to consult on its approach to innovation um, and their their innovation hub, and there's going to be a renewed focus on mar market abuse. And <clears throat> we probably see some of the central bank's enforcement capacity being directed at that area this year and next. The central bank says it's going to focus on anti money laundering and the counter finance and terrorism. No surprises there; that's always on the list. But they did also include financial sanctions as a priority this year, which is new. So I'd encourage firms to take a look at their financial sanction screening programs make sure they're fit for, for purpose and make sure that you have policies around financial sanctions. Um, we're going to see the rollout of the EU's anti-money laundering action plan this year and this the establishment of a single supervisor authority for the purposes of anti-money laundering. And then we're going to have a review of PSD2 as well and functioning of open banking. And there's going to be the implementation of new new legislation. So we'll have DORA being implemented and WALCA being implemented in Ireland. And then finally, the central bank is going to focus on climate change and climate risk. 
Um, turning to our final slide, and this one is directed at payment institutions and electronic money institutions. So for these firms, it looks like it's going to be another another busy year. Um, those in the audience, all payments firms and e-money firms will be well aware of the December 2021 Dear CEO letter. And the Central Bank has recently stated a new Dear CEO letter from, from January this year that over the past 12 months, it's identified significant deficiencies in the governance, risk management and control framework of some payments and e-money firms. And it also noted that one in every four firms self-identified deficiencies in their safeguarding and risk management frameworks um, on foot of that December 2021 measure. Um, the the key takeaway from, from the new Dear CEO letter is that payments and e-money firms now have to have an independent audit carried out, so by external auditors, on their compliance with their safeguarding obligations. And that audit opinion, along with the board response, to the outcome of the audit must be submitted to the central bank by 31st of July this year. So that deadline is going to creep up on us pretty quickly. So I'd encourage all firms to get, get moving on that as soon as possible. And with that in mind, I think it's worth highlighting one comment that the central bank had included in the January year CEO letter. It says that has no appetite for the crystallization of risks that would materially undermine achievement of its supervisory objectives, which are focused on safeguarding stability and protecting consumers. I think that really is a warning from the central bank and it should be taken seriously by firms. Just to mention as well, we're going to have the the, the transposit, transposition of credit servicing directive this year as well. And Irene is going to go into a bit more detail on that shortly. Um, that was very much a, a high level look at what's going on when it comes to regulation and flavor things that are going to be coming down the tracks this year. Again, one thing I can't emphasize enough, and if you're going to take one thing away from today, is the importance of bringing dear CEO letters, CBI reports, and correspondence to the attention of your boards and formalizing a plan to deal with them as soon as possible and build them into your compliance framework. And if you need to respond to them, build in a plan to deal with and respond to them if you need to. Um, if anyone has any questions, please do pop those into the Q&A function. Um, we should get a bit of time to deal with those towards the end of the session. I'm going to hand you back over to, to Neil now. Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks for that, Rowena. Um, not going on in that space. And uh, some very good advice there. I, I wasn't aware of the 31st of July deadline for the independent audit for the e-money institutions myself. So so that's one big takeaway from it. Uh, just one thing came to mind as you were going through your slides. The TME, uh, so, so there's some serious big numbers that the retail banks have uh, received fines on. Is that the end of the, the TME now? Are we done or is there more to come? I think there's more to come. Um, the banks themselves will have received sanctions and fines. Obviously, they've been record fines that the central bank has given for, for contraventions that's identified as part of the TME. But there's now going to be certain individuals whose conduct in respect to those contraventions is going to be investigated. And there's a number of those investigations ongoing. And I suspect there'll be more as well. So. When it comes to individuals, it takes a long time to to, to conclude and, and have an outcome. So I think we're going to be looking at and dealing with kind of repercussions from the TME for, for a number of years yet. Um, and while it wasn't in the, the tracker mortgage space, we did see last year that the Centre Bank took its first market abuse adverse assessment against an individual last year for insider insider trading. And that particular, the contraventions involved took place in 2008. And we're only getting to the point now last year where, where the individual actually had an adverse assessment made or found against them. So 
it does take a bit of time so that people will be dealing with the outcome from the, the TME for, for a long time to come yet. Yeah, how are you, yes. Um, Rowena also mentioned the new credit servicing directive. So um, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Irene McCartig, who's got some very well, as always, thought out views on this. It's in a consultation phase, so that really encourages open dialogue. So hopefully Irene will will, will share her, her well-founded views. Um, over to you, Irene. Thank you, Neil. And good morning, everyone. My name is Irene Nick-Corhig. I work in the financial services team here at Mason Hayes & Curran. And one of my key focus areas is loan portfolio sales, acquisitions, and financings. Over the past few years, this has meant working on novel ways to structure these transactions to ensure compliance with the Irish credit servicing legislation. Now the EU credit servicing directive has come into play. It needs to be implemented into Irish law by the end of this year. I'm going to share three observations on the directive today. Two of these are difficulties that I have with the proposed new regime. The third is what I see as the main positive part of the new regime. The first issue I see is with the dual approach that will be created in Ireland. We're going to have sales that fall inside and outside the scope of the directive. Sales falling within the scope of the directive will be sales of EU bank originated MPLs sold after the 29th of December. They're going to be subject to the new directive regime. Sales of performing loans, sales between credit institutions, and sales of non-credit institution originated loans will continue to be subject to the existing Irish regime. Clearly, this doesn't make a lot of sense. The directive's intended purpose is to develop the European market for NPLs. So Ireland should have taken the introduction of the credit servicing directive as an excuse to look at our current credit servicing regime. It's easy to see that the current Irish regime goes far beyond the directive because it requires the authorization of legal title holders. In discussing this area, the European Parliament had expressly noted that credit purchasers don't need to be authorised to purchase MPLs. The reason for this being that they are not creating new credit, but are instead buying NPLs at their own risk. And the same falls true for performing loans. So Ireland should have kept this in mind and brought our current regime in line with the directive to harmonise this area and aim to create an EU open market. The second issue I have is with disclosure templates. The directive will require sellers of NPLs to provide detailed disclosure templates. The provision of information in a standardized data format sounds great, but we all know that Irish banks suffer from certain information and documentation gaps. A lot of Irish banks simply don't have all the information and documentation for historic loans. The disclosure templates requirement has the potential to add more red tape and add barriers to certain trades. It could even make certain sales impossible. For example, secondary trades, where the current owner is not the loan originator and was never provided with the required information when they purchased the loan. I think the main benefit of the directive is the credit servicing passporting regime. In Ireland, there's a shortage of suitable credit servicers. This is because a lot of credit servicers are captive to certain funds and the independent servicers are extremely busy. This creates a major obstacle in Ireland. 
We've even seen large transactions delayed because of this. The ability for other firms to passport into Ireland should be welcomed. Equally, Irish firms should welcome the opportunity to passport into other EU countries and to use the level of knowledge and experience that they have gained in Ireland to grow their business. Those are just three of my main observations. It's quite an interesting and topical area, so please do send your questions or observations through the Q&A function. Uh, thanks for that, Irene. Um, some very interesting commentary there. Uh, one thing that really sticks out for me is the the new passporting rights. Surely, Scotty adds some real value to the uh, to the Irish credit servicing industry and the value of the, the companies and else. So, it's, uh, as you said, that's one good thing that's coming out of it. Um, but one thing that uh, you and I regularly um, are challenged with is how how does this new directive deal with mixed portfolios of performing and non-performing loans? Like how what are the banks to do or the the, the the sellers of loans to do in the years ahead when this isn't being clear in the directive? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, the directive isn't actually clear about how to deal with mixed portfolios. It may be that we'll get a bit more guidance throughout the year as the directive is being discussed and transposed into Irish law. But if we don't get any guidance, I think our advice would be that we'll need to adhere to the current Irish credit servicing legislation because that's the stricter regime. So we'll need to err on the side of caution with that. Okay, thanks very much for that, Irene. Very interesting. Um, you know, I, I know everybody's waiting to hear about um, from Seamus and his economic update. Uh, as I mentioned to you before, Seamus is a leading economist in the UCC and the former chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory. Uh, Council, so no doubt he has some great insights for us this morning. I'll not keep you waiting any longer. Over to you, Jules. Well, thanks very much, Neil. Uh, and I'll just put up uh, a few slides there to help us through the discussion. Um, yeah, so I think I'm going to tie in well with um, Neil's introduction, which focused on, on volatility and the, the possibility of a soft landing. Maybe the, the terminology I'm using is slightly different, but it certainly is the case that um, what we've been going through, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, have been significant turbulence uh, when it comes to economic conditions. We've moved on from the, the public health crisis uh, of 2020 and 2021, uh, and now a more geopolitical crisis uh, driven by the, the war in Ukraine and the impact it's having uh, on our economic conditions. So for the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to focus on some of the two aspects of it from an Irish perspective. Look at the impact on prices, and look at consumer prices, some of the changes we've seen, the large changes we've seen in terms of interest rates, maybe how that's feeding through uh, into prices that consumers are facing uh, on the interest rate side. And then we'll look at more income and resources, uh, energy, which clearly has been a key driver of the inflation we've seen from an Irish perspective, with always an emphasis uh, on corporation tax. And we may, if time, uh, look at some housing issues, uh, including maybe uh, housing supply, maybe how it might be uh, impacting different parts of the economy. But the story as a whole is one that is driven by um, inflation. And we've seen uh, very significant changes in inflation in a very short period of time uh, in, in Ireland and the Euro area as a whole. We've gone from a period of relatively um, inflation for a quite significant period. Like if we look at this chart of the annual inflation rate going back to, to 2013, back over 10 years. You can see it up to recently. Uh, they tracked each other and they were zero negative at times uh, so a very benign inflation environment but then that steep rise uh, 
12, 14 months ago, which we just discussed uh, at our uh, session last year and just continued on. Now, perhaps we have some tentative signs uh, of an easing in the rate of inflation. That's something we'll come back to. Uh, but that's just the price increases slowing down. That's not returning to the level they were at before. What we want to look at initially is, I suppose, the responses we've seen uh, to the inflation, uh, particularly in the euro area and the response of the European Central Bank. And it has been um, very significant in terms of the increases uh, of the ECB's interest rates we've seen over the past while. So this is the full history uh, of the ECB's interest rate. And we can see that the recent a benign inflation environment was actually associated with close to zero interest rates as set by the ECB. In fact, the ECB's deposit rate was negative for the period from, from 2016 to, to 2021, 2022. But now we've had very steep rides in line with the increase we've seen in inflation. Now, is this the, has this been the appropriate policy response? Well, really, it's the only response the ECB can do. The ECB has a, a single mandate, and that is price stability. Uh, and the ECB just defines price stability as inflation averaging 2%. Clearly, the previous chart showing inflation reaching 10% across the euro area isn't inflation averaging 2%. Uh, so the ECB has to act. And really, the only policy tool the ECB has when it comes to inflation above its target is to increase or change interest rates. Uh, and that is what we've seen. Uh, very significant changes with the, the main refinancing rate of the ECB reaching 3% at its most recent meeting a couple of weeks ago. And of course, maybe somewhat unusually, um, the ECB said that we're going to increase it by another half a percentage point uh, at their next meeting, which will be in, in the middle of March. Uh, so that rate will go to 3.5%, assuming they follow through with uh, the forward guidance they issued at the last meeting. But uh, a quite unusual step in the sense to almost guarantee uh, what the outcome of their next meeting would be. And that rate will reach 3.5%. Uh, and, and that would be that so the key rate for many uh, in Ireland, those that continue to have tracker rate mortgages, this is the interest rate uh, that those mortgages will be tracking. Um, so the margin will be over 3% at present. Um, and in a couple of weeks' time, it'll be heading for, for 3.5%. So the ECB rate has been uh, increasing quite significantly. But perhaps in an Irish perspective, we're not seeing that fully pass through um, to the, um, the retail environment. Um, so here, not necessarily looking at tracker rate mortgages, which automatically have to follow uh, the ECB rate. And given that tracker mortgages are 15 or more years old at this stage, um, many that the balances should be if they've been repaid over a, a schedule relatively modest. If we look at lending for new house purchases or new lending, um, we see a sort of a unusual change in Ireland. Uh, so this is the, the main euro area countries. Uh, and the, the narrative for the past couple of years would have been that mortgage interest rates in Ireland are one of the highest in the euro area. That would have been true. You go back there to the start of that chart, it was only January 20. Like of the set of 12 or 13 countries we have here, uh, Ireland would have been buying for Greece for having the, the highest uh, interest rates uh, for new lending for house purchases uh, across the euro area. Um, but now actually what's happened, if you look at the most recent data, Ireland is one of the lowest for the interest rate for uh, lending, new lending for, for house purchase. And it's not necessarily that interest rates in Ireland have increased. Uh, it's more that they've increased in other countries in line with what the ECB have been doing. So this increase tracks for other countries, tracks what the ECB is doing. In Ireland, as of yet, we haven't necessarily seen uh, a significant pass-through uh, from the, the lenders of the ECB interest. It is beginning to happen. It's 
So the most recent data there is for December. And I think by January and February, we will see it increase. But it's hard to know whether Ireland's relative position will change. We've gone from being right towards the top, going with Greece, uh, to in this group of countries here, now being the second lowest, uh, with only France uh, having a, a lower uh, interest rate for new lending for house purchase. So while the ECB have been changing things, uh, and some in Ireland clearly have, have, have seen it, particularly uh, those on trackers, for new lending yet to feature, but we do see the banks announcing increases in their fixed rates. We've seen them announcing increases uh, in their variable rates. So I think we will see that green line for Ireland edge up. But there has been a big change um, in the relative position in quite a short period of time. We might come back to other impacts uh, that this sort of lack of change in Irish interest rates has uh, and other parts of the um, the economy, particularly maybe when it comes to deposits. Moving more to the uh, government side um, and looking at the yield of Irish government bonds. Uh, and here we're looking at what's termed the yield curve. So along the bottom, we have the residual. That's essentially how long is left um, on uh, a particular uh, bond from, from one year um, out to, to 30 years. Um, and if the, um, the the length of time that's left uh, on the uh, the bond, so from very short term for one year all the way out to, to ones that are maturing in, in the 2050s. Uh, and looking at the yield curve, so what happens over different maturities, Six months ago, that green line is largely what you'd expect, uh, particularly the, the slope of it, upward sloping, uh, that the return or yield on much longer bonds would be higher than the return or yield on shorter bonds. Uh, so you have the uh, very low rates for one, two, three years, out down to the rate of 2% for, for 20 to 30 years, still relatively low. But we're interested in the slope, the shape of the yield curve. You can see what happened then a month ago, it flattened out. And the blue line is where we were yesterday. Um, the Irish government bond yield curve, and it is remarkably flat. Um, it looks like if you were to lend to the Irish government for three years and for 30 years, your annual average return would be broadly the same. Surely the uncertainty, the risks over 30 years would be much higher that you'd need to be compensated with more return uh, to to lend over that period. And in fact, over the near term, if you look at the difference between one, two years and three, four and five, actually what we have is an inverted yield curve. You get more interest, uh, more yield, uh, if you buy a two-year Irish government bond than if you buy a four or five-year. So we have different interpretations of this. One interpretation that this is a signal of doom and that we're about to enter a recession uh, and that interest rates will fall. Or secondly, it could be the expectation uh, that inflation will fall. And if inflation falls, uh, we might see a moderating of the interest rate increases that central banks have been doing. So these are, are the Irish yields, but probably reflective of what's happening uh, across the euro area and across the world. But this flat line, this sort of equal return up and down the yield curve uh, would be uh, somewhat unusual um, and maybe reflective of sort of market participants uh, that interest rate increases uh, might be reaching their peak soon and even over the next couple of years could fall slightly. But that's just market participants' views. Not necessarily that's right. Uh, that's just showing what the, the yield curve gives us um, at this stage, coming back to inflation, which is going to drive what the ECB are doing, we have the um, Irish and Euro area inflation rates for, for the past couple of years. And we see they track each other. And essentially what this tells us is that they're being driven by similar factors, that the inflation in Ireland and inflation across the Euro area is being driven by similar factors. And of course, a key factor of that is energy uh, and energy prices. Um, and this raises the question of whether 
increasing interest rates is the appropriate response to rises in energy prices. Because most of the impact on energy prices is external. It's certainly outside of Ireland, and it's almost all outside of the euro area. Uh, so what is increasing interest rates in the euro area going to do uh, to energy prices? But I guess what the ECB are looking at is second round effects uh, that they wouldn't want inflation to become embedded. But if we look at the impact of the increase in energy costs, um, we see that it is quite significant. So from an Irish perspective, here's the cost of our fuel imports um, in, in millions of euros. So we're looking at a negative number. This is money flowing out of Ireland. Uh, and pre-pandemic, we'd be looking at an average annual cost of around four billion. So this would have been buying oil, buying gas, buying energy, net of any imports, if there's uh, fuel that goes in the other direction. We're looking at an annual average cost of around four billion. So a pretty significant amount of money. But just look at what's happened in the past 12 or 15 months. That amount has soared. Now, it's more negative, so this is money leaving the country. Uh, and for 2022, it was 11 billion. So this is a, a reduction in national welfare. There is nothing the government can do to overcome this. Oil and gas cost more, and that is more money leaving Ireland. This is a huge amount, changing from 4 billion on an annual basis, average around pre-COVID, to 11 billion last year. Now, the government have introduced measures to try and alleviate the impact for some. I think we just lost um, Seamus there for a moment. Um, just while maybe Seamus is uh, logging back in, um, we can put Irene and Rowena back up on the screen. Irene, um, big response already on the Q&A to your, um, your piece on the Conservancing Directive. Um, couple of questions here while we're waiting on Seamus. Firstly, uh, in terms of detailed disclosures to be made, is it clear from the outset what detail is needed? So a seal might be clearly impossible from the outset, or could these required disclosures arise as a seal progresses after costs are incurred by relevant parties in respect to due diligence? That was one of our participants as asked that. Um, so the EBA is responsible for creating the data templates and they have published the draft templates which have been sent to the European Commission to sign off on and those are available on the EBA's website at the moment. And once they're finalised, they will be made available. There's going to be certain fields of the data templates that are mandatory and other fields that are just there but are not going to be mandatory. So parties will definitely be able to review them in advance and see what fields they'll be able to populate before they go to any expense in relation to due diligence or enablement. Interesting. Um, Rowena as well, good, good bit of reaction to your, to your piece as well. Um, one of our audience says that you mentioned the Credit Services Directive, uh, but we, we didn't go into its transposition. Uh, from a financial regulation perspective, are there any regulatory pitfalls about what has been considered around transposition? Do you have, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, look, it, there's always teething problems when it comes to a new regulatory framework. Um, and in some ways, from just a purely legislative process, it can be a lot easier if you've got a blank regulatory space to deal with. We don't have that here. Like I already mentioned, we have a well-established domestic credit servicing regime that's already up and running. It has been for a number of years. And now we're looking at overlaying that with a new regime that's going to apply to, to sales and loans from the end of end of December this year. Um, so I think we have to be very careful about how the two, re two regimes are going to interact with each other 
um, it can be really cumbersome when you have two separate regimes. So like by way of example, and, and some people in the audience will probably be familiar with this, it's our, our MIFID framework. So the framework in Ireland that applies to investment firms. And before MIFID was transposed in Ireland, so that was back in, in 2007, we did have a domestic regime before that, and that was under the Investment Intermediaries Act. So that was legislation from 1995. And when MIFID was transposed, it didn't fully replace that regime, the, the domestic regime. Um, and it still applies to this day. And there are certain areas where you can fall into the Investment Intermediaries Act regime. And mainly it's MIFID, that's the more encompassing regime. But you do have this kind of, I suppose, regulatory, I suppose, um, gap between the two and that they both apply. So it can be cumbersome to navigate both regimes, particularly when the Investment Intermediary Acts apply or don't apply. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that we get the transposition right um, and the interaction between the two regimes if we're going to have separate regimes that apply here. Seamus, I see you're back. Um, if you can share your screen there, uh, feel free to um, pick up where, where we left off. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, yeah, I had to deal with a, a trip switch. Um, but yeah, so we were looking at the the cost to, to Ireland of the increased price of fuel, which has, has got up uh, globally. And, and the question being whether the, the ECB's response with interest rates is appropriate uh, when much of the inflation is driven uh, by external factors, but again, going back to what we said, that they're looking at, at the potential second round effects that the inflation will become embedded uh, or more permanent in, in the language uh, of the ECBs. And from our perspective, this isn't the first time uh, we've gone through something like this. Uh, so this is is the cost of our fuel imports going back over 50 years. Uh, and we have met um, these issues before, and they have led to significant problems um, from an Irish perspective particularly back in the 1970s, um, when there was two oil price shocks, one in the early 1970s, 73, 74, where the, the net cost of our imports went from about 2% of national income to 5% of national income. Uh, and again, later in that decade, the second oil price shock, um, which drove up the, the cost of our net energy imports to about 7% of national income. And we just weren't in a position to absorb those blows. Uh, maybe we perhaps overdid it when it came to the first oil shock, but we were borrowing heavily uh, in the late 1970s. And when oil price increased, uh, it put the economy into free fall uh, and led to the, the, the sort of, in a sense, the devastating decade uh, of the 1980s of high unemployment, high inflation, uh, high outward migration. Um, and that would perhaps color some of the, the policy responses we might see in Ireland. It gets a bit hidden, but we also had a bit of a, an oil price shock around 2009, 10, 11, but in Ireland, the economy itself was in a tailspin uh, and wasn't necessarily caused by the, the increase in, in the cost of energy, but it certainly did exacerbate it. And we see where the, the 2022 uh, results lie. And it looks like our energy cost last year were about 4% of national income, a significant increase in what it was just a couple of years ago. So this is a, a loss of national wealth, but it can't be avoided. We're paying out this money to buy energy um, to run the economy, whether it's on transport, uh, electricity, uh, and other parts of the manufacturing sector to use significant amounts of energy. This is money that, that is leaving Ireland. One question that might come up briefly is, well, where is it going? Who's getting it? Uh, and maybe if we look at um, the balance of payments of a significant European oil expor exporter. Now, this isn't to say that all the money that's leaving Ireland is going to Norway. We're just using Norway as an example uh, of who the beneficiaries are. 
Um, and this is, is Norway's balance of payments, the net flow of money in and out of a country. Um, and Norway, as a significant energy exporter, has been running pretty significant balance of payment surpluses. Uh, and pre-COVID, those surpluses uh, averaged about 20 billion a year. Uh, so these are on an annual basis. And you can see through 2017, 2018, 2019, moving up and down a bit, but around 20 billion a year. So Norway is a country of five and a half million people. So a balance of payment surplus of 20 billion a year uh, is, is pretty significant. Uh, around four or four and a half thousand euro per capita for every person in the country. But just look at what's happened in the last 12 or 18 months uh, as the price of energy has increased. Norway's balance of payment surplus has surged. Uh, and on an annual basis towards the end of 2022 was hitting for 150 billion euro. Again, with about five and a half million people, so the country isn't much bigger than Ireland, you're looking at a balance of payment surplus of close on 25,000 euro every person in the country in, in just a 12-month period. Uh, and this is a country that already has uh, a $1 trillion sovereign wealth fund. Um, and now they've been able to add significant amount to that. Uh, because they have been a significant beneficiary uh, of the increase in, in the price of energy. So from an Irish perspective, we might look to levy uh, windfall taxes uh, on those benefiting from the higher energy prices. Yes, some of it might be the energy companies, those downstream companies using the oil and gas that the energy exporting countries uh, produce and use. But in the main, it's actually the energy exporting countries uh, that have been the beneficiary in a, in a European perspective. You just have to look at Norway. Uh, to see where uh, a lot of the money is going. Uh, maybe as energy prices normalise, uh, we will see this fall, and that will hopefully translate into lower uh, energy prices in an Irish perspective. Uh, but if we're looking for the winners from this, uh, there's no doubt we have to, can look at, at, at Norway. That's not to say there haven't been winners uh, in Ireland. So here are just a number of average prices for typical everyday products uh, that we buy on a pretty regular basis. So whether it's automotive fuel, so looking at the price of diesel per litre, and you can see that stable at around 130, 140 uh, prior to COVID and then Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, and then briefly topping two euro uh, in the middle of last summer. And that was after the government had uh, knocked over just over 10 cent uh, off the excise duty uh, of diesel, so the price would have been even higher. Since then, we are beginning to see uh, some moderation, maybe back now down towards uh, 170, 165, uh, but still above where it was uh, pre, uh, pre COVID and pre the, the invasion of Ukraine. On the other hand, we won where Irish consumers perhaps uh, are feeling the pain with, with the price of milk, but maybe one where Irish producers are getting some of the benefit. Uh, so Ireland has a pretty significant dairy sector, uh, and the price of milk, uh, the farm gate price of milk has increased pretty significantly uh, in the past while, and that's why we're seeing it pass through onto consumers. So pre-COVID, the average price of a two litre of milk would have been around at 170. Yes, it would vary by retailer. But on average, the CSO would put it at 170. We now see that it has risen and has risen up above two litre, two euros, with much of that going to the producers, the farmers. And it's estimated that average dairy farm income in Ireland last year was 150,000 euro, um, driven mainly by the increase in the price of milk. Yes, they'll have seen some uh, input cost increases, uh, their energy, of course, they, they'd be paying for energy, their, their fertilizers and other costs. But of course, the, the key input for, for dairy farming in Ireland is grass, um, and the price of that doesn't change. Uh, so they've seen a, a gain uh, with the value of the output they're producing, not on a scale that we're seeing for Norway, 
Um, but it is a touch of swings and roundabouts. There have been some beneficiaries uh, domestically uh, from the inflation we've seen, uh, even if consumers are seeing the, the increase in the price there. So what we're taking from this also is that maybe we're beginning to see some moderation in those energy prices uh, as we progress through things. For those that have been here before, we probably say, well, what's the one chart that this fella keeps using? And, and that would be this one looking at sort of the outcome for Ireland's government and household sectors. Are they running a surplus? Are they running a, a deficit? And we can see over the past 20 years that Ireland has predominantly been in deficit. Whether it was the households doing the borrowing up to 2007, 2008, then a huge hole up in the public finances for the next decade. Uh, the government did the borrowing. But for the last couple of years, Ireland has been a country of saving. Um, particularly from the household sector, those blue bars in recent years. During the peak of the pandemic, household saving was running at about 30 billion on an annual basis. They've opened up the pubs again so we can spend more money. But households are still saving around 20 billion. And that's now been added to by government savings. Um, of 7 or 8 billion. So we're saving as a country close to 30 billion euro per annum. An unprecedented level um, from an Irish perspective. Uh, lots of income out there that simply isn't being spent. You can look at the distribution of it or question the distribution of it because this is only an aggregate chart. Uh, we don't necessarily know who uh, is doing the savings. What households um, are generating 20 billion of an increase uh, in bank deposits on an annual basis. But we really have to ask ourselves, like, are we as an economy in a position but we can have 30 billion of income that isn't spent. It's not spent on consumption. It's not spent on capital, on infrastructure, on investment. Uh, it's simply going on the financial balance sheets. Uh, it's going to repay debt uh, or going to the increase in deposits, which is what we see with the household sector. Again, an extraordinary story over a 20-year period of Ireland um, of massive buildup of debt, that red line rising from 2000 to 2008, then deleveraging, significant repayment of debt and also maybe some debt write-downs. Uh, but then in recent years, debt levelling out, but the amount of deposits increasing significantly. Uh, and between currency and deposits, and the Irish household sector is sitting on close to 200 billion. Uh, it is an extraordinary amount of money. You could question whether we should be saving it. Would we like to spend it? We'd possibly like to spend it on more new housing, um, if that was available. Or should we be putting the money into more sophisticated financial instruments? Should all this money be sitting on deposit? zero or close to zero interest rates um, and why is that it's, it's grown but by such uh, a large amount we said we might get some time to look at housing and we're pretty much near the end and there's really no positive picture or few positive pictures you can give about housing in Ireland at the moment um, and here is another one that has sort of a, a bit of a, a negative um, uh, tone to it that being housing commencements uh, the number of new units that have been started Yes, there's still probably some COVID issues working through. Uh, and briefly, uh, in late 2021 and early 2022, housing commencements got over 30,000. And we're looking for housing output to get to 30,000 and beyond. We need more housing than that. But that hasn't been maintained. Uh, and housing commencements over the last while have fallen again, back down towards 25,000 uh, on an annual basis. Uh, and maybe disappointingly, given where the pressures are most acute, uh, we're not seeing a significant increase in the Dublin or even the greater Dublin area um, where housing needs are, are at their most uh, acute. Uh, so this is an ongoing issue from an Irish perspective. We're not seeing uh, the output sufficient to, to ease uh, the problems we have that uh, housing demand is outstripping housing supply. And we're seeing this in relation to prices uh, and all particularly um, in relation to rents. Um, 
And then just to conclude on a, a theme that arises frequently from our perspective, uh, and that's corporate tax revenues. And we've spoken about the Norwegian balance of payments as a, on a per capita basis. We could also look at corporate income tax revenues across the EU, particularly the, the main uh, Western EU countries on a per capita basis. Now, we recovered from most countries in 2021, but Ireland continued to, to strip ahead. Uh, now, Luxembourg isn't included here, but Luxembourg's the size of Limerick. Um, so maybe we have legitimate reasons for leaving it out. And you can see that on a per capita basis in 2021, Ireland was collecting about €3,000 per capita in corporate income tax. Of course, most of this paid by foreign companies. And that leaves us well ahead of all our peer countries. Uh, they seem to be grouped together in countries around um, 1,500 to 2,000, a group of countries around 1,000, and then the likes of Spain, Portugal, Greece, and Italy uh, at around 500 or even lower. But in 2021, Ireland was €3,000 per capita. And we can just roll it forward because we have the exchequer figures. We can do it for Ireland for 2022. And I don't think any country is going to come near what we've seen in relation to corporate income tax uh, from an Irish perspective. About 23 billion collected last year with 5 million of us. That's about 4,500 euro per capita for every person in the country. It's 18,000 for a household of four people uh, in corporate income tax receipts collected. Again, with most of us paid by foreign owned companies. And most of that being FDI foreign-owned companies who are here to service the global market. So this tax isn't coming from Irish revenues, it's coming from global revenues. So it's an injection to Ireland. Um, where I could make a comparison to what Norway are doing with energy, yes, it's a, a bit uh, lower, but um, energy prices seem likely to fall. What's going to happen to Irish CT receipts? We simply don't know. But they are at significantly elevated levels uh, at present. So just to conclude... But Neil spoke about the soft landing. Maybe are we closer to, to calmer waters? There's some tentative signs of inflation easing, but it still is high and positive. Inflation slowing down isn't prices coming down. Inflation slowing down is just the rate of increases falling. That's a necessary step for inflation to become more stable. Well, that's all it is. Energy prices are falling, but uncertainties remain particularly in the geopolitical sphere. And we may be close to the rate tightening cycling near the end, particularly if you look at what's happening to the yield curves. Uh, of government bonds uh, across the euro area. But I think we will see some more increases before it reaches the conclusion. From an Irish perspective, we can be asking, should we be saving nearly 30 billion a year? Why couldn't we be spending on it? Perhaps caution is merited because a lot of that money is coming from corporation tax, and that's certainly a risk. But we do need more housing. So I'll leave it there. I'm looking forward to the Q&A. Any questions you might have? Seamus, thanks for that. Well, where do we start? That, that, that was very informative. I think we've an ops that we can pick up on there. Um, maybe we start with the correlation between interest rates and inflation. So like we have another rate increase slated for March. Um, and when I looked into this, I saw some conflicting opinions at European level about whether we should shift smaller rate increases so that we don't stamp out growth, but then others want bigger rate increases so that inflation doesn't stay too high. Where do you stand on it? Like, if you were still in the uh, fiscal advisory committee, would you be telling the Irish government to do more or less? Yeah, I suppose. Like, you have to look at what constraints do people face, and like, there's no right or wrong answer. You just say that there are different views. If we take it from an ECB perspective, the ECB only has one a single mandate, and that is price stability. Um, so from the ECB perspective, if inflation remains high, they must do something. That's their mandate, and what they can do is increase interest rates. Yes, we can take a broader view about economic performance, employment, incomes, 
the impact the higher interest rates are having on households. But that's really outside the, the remit of the ECB. And if you take what's happening in terms of economic policy, we are seeing a bit, a bit of a conflict. Like the ECB are increasing interest rates, maybe trying to choke off demand in the economy to, to stabilize that rate of inflation. Where you see the response of the Irish government is how can we introduce measures to offset the, the cost of living increases we're seeing? So the government is putting money into the economy. So that they're moving in opposite directions. But I think what the Irish government are doing is uh, pretty appropriate because of the impact of the cost of living crisis is more severely felt towards the lower end of the income distribution. And I think this round we've seen most of the measures have been targeted uh, at the lower end of the income distribution, which is appropriate. What would I do in terms of inflation? I would be worried about inflation. You don't want it to become embedded uh, and have those second round effects. Um, so I think, given the experience we had in Ireland in the 1970s, that caution about squeezing out inflation uh, is merit. I think the ECB will continue to do it and hopefully it is successful because we don't want a sustained period of high inflation. Just on that embedded point, um, it just it popped up in the Q&A there halfway through your um, your trip switch might have gone at the time, but uh, one of the attendees says your net fuel imports chart was very alarming, but there's been some interesting developments in the last few weeks. Gas storage capacity in Europe is over at over 80% of its maximum total capacity. Wholesale gas prices dropped to their lowest level in 17 months. Uh, we winged ourselves off Russian energy sources with alternative sources from elsewhere. If that proves to be a permanent change, do you think it will have a significant long-term favorable impact on inflation? Or how have high inflationary pressures become deep, so deeply embedded in European economies? Maybe we're still suffering a hangover, the attendee says, from all of the truly pumped in during the financial crisis. Yeah, we're combining lots of different stuff there. Like in terms of the dependence on Russian energy, that's sort of a geopolitical issue in terms of, I suppose, the war, the sanctions that are being imposed on Russia. But clearly, going back in the late summer, early autumn, that was viewed as being a very significant problem for Europe, given the the, the gas pipelines, given the dependence, particularly in the likes of Germany, uh, on Russian gas. And it was felt that perhaps Europe wouldn't get through this winter uh, without experiencing significant gas shortages. Now, as the contributor points out, uh, Europe during the, the late summer and early autumn went to stock up uh, its storage. In Ireland, we have no gas storage. Well, other countries have significant amounts. Yeah. Uh, and they got those up towards 100% uh, at the start of the winter. Uh, and then perhaps increased gas production from the likes of Norway, the North Sea, uh, the Netherlands, etc. within Europe and um, aided some of it. And the, the lack of Russian gas wasn't necessarily felt now, the weather did help. We didn't have too many uh, cold snaps. And indeed, in the last four to six weeks uh, across Europe has been a very benign January and February. Um, so that has limited uh, energy demand. So I think, yes, we've successfully weaned ourselves off the Russian energy and we have seen those prices fall. And they will come true. We're seeing with diesel uh, and maybe electricity uh, that wholesale prices are beginning to fall. So I think it, it is proving to be... Um, maybe easier than what was felt. It was thought there might be blackouts throughout Europe given the shortage of gas. Um, and I think maybe it was down to a shortage of winds that we might have had blackouts, but we've avoided them. Uh, maybe someone has been lucky, but someone has been the preparation, getting the um, the gas, gas into those storage. Uh, so I think Europe has shown that it can come through a winter uh, without the need for rushing gas. So that sort of bodes well for the next heating season, which isn't for a significant period of time. And I think we will see that moderation in prices continue, hopefully. Well, stick with rates. Um, quick question from one of the attendees. Are we likely to see negative rates again in the next 10 years or was that experiment a failure? Mm, great question. 
uh, I think we were surprised to see negative rates in the first place. And um, during the, the last decade, there was the talk of the zero lower bound, that you couldn't have interest rates going to negative territory. But of course, the ECB and other central banks broke through it um, and reduced interest rates to negative. Now, they only did it for deposit rates. Uh, so if banks gave money to the ECB, the ECB charged them an interest rate for putting that money on deposit. We never saw as uh, for, for lending rates, particularly from the central banks, they, they went as, as far as zero. So that'd be the case of if banks put money on deposit, the ECB would be paying them. So it would be interesting to see whether we test the, the, the zero lower zero lower bound for lending rates, uh, which we haven't seen yet. I think the last five, six years before the, the COVID pandemic were unprecedented. With hundreds of years of history uh, of interest rates, we had never seen them so low uh, previously. And central banks had been anxious to get interest rates back to more normal levels. And that's probably part um, driving the recent increases we've seen that central banks say we want to get interest rates up to give them some movement or ability on the downside. The once you're at zero and you decide you can't go any lower, well, what else do you do? Uh, so I think it's perhaps unlikely we'll see negative interest rates over the next 10 years. That's not to rule it out. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but I think central banks would like to give them some scope to be able to move rates up, but also down. Uh, well, one other point that came, really, uh, came across strongly was your comments on the household sector. And I think you mentioned 30 billion uh, was the number of deposits that that continues to increase, but no sign of the deposit rate increasing, mm. even though the base rate obviously has increased substantially, as we, you've mentioned. It's really difficult to reconcile. Do you have a view on why that is the case? Yeah, so Ireland seems to be a, a bit unusual. So, so one of the charts I put up was that the lending rates uh, for mortgages and up to now, they haven't really increased significantly in Ireland. So as you say, the ECB have increased interest rates. But Irish banks haven't, uh, particularly for new lending, haven't safely increased their rates yet. I do expect them to rise. But across Europe, those lending rates have risen, excuse me, but still to have their deposit rates. So European banks have sort of maintained their margin. They've pushed up their lending rates, but also pushed up the deposit rates. And in many Euro area countries, deposit rates are 1% or even higher. Uh, for non-current account deposits. Whereas in Ireland, they still remain uh, close to zero. But Irish banks have sort of maintained their margin. They haven't increased their lending rates, and then subsequently they haven't increased their deposit rates. And the Irish banks are swimming in deposits. Like, they are essentially deposit-taking institutions at this stage. They, the, the, the deposits swamp the lending they're doing, and they have tens of billions of euro put on deposit with the central bank because they have no other use for it. Uh, it's not being lent out into the economy, uh, they can't see uh, areas where they can increase lending sufficiently just to cover the amount they're taking in. So from the Irish banking bank's perspective, they're saying we don't need to increase deposit rates. Uh, we already have sufficient funding. Um, and at least they are saying then that they're moderating the increases uh, in interest rates on the lending side. Um, and from a household perspective, it's actually the deposit rate, which is probably more important at this stage in aggregate terms. The distribution is much different. It's likely older owner-occupier households building up these deposits. Whereas younger households are with the mortgages, they're looking at what the, the borrowing rates are. Um, we, in, like, in lots of cases, Ireland is a bit of an outlier. And on the interest rates, we seem to be a bit of an outlier. The ECB is raising them. Uh, but as of yet, they haven't really been passed through in Ireland. Okay, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, on the Q&A, um, Irene, quite a bit of reaction to your uh, your piece. Um, and just this has come up a couple of times. What is Ireland's view on the variable rate mortgage prisoners? And what can be done with these customers? Now, I assume, I mean, this is a reference. There's about 100,000 nodes out there owned by non-bank funds who are kind of, I think they're suffering with the, the value increase being passed on. Their credit history is not great. So it's very hard for them to get back into the main retail banks. Um, 
think I saw something at the weekend where that one of the suggestions might have been the business post where it was we should we should just ignore the credit history and if they've got affordability we should just get A B bank wire and PHSB to refinance these guys. Uh, like is that the best solution? Do you have any thoughts on that? It's come up a couple of times here, so uh, just to see if you have any thoughts. Um, yeah, that's quite optical at the moment. And in relation to the options available, I guess, asking the banks to take them back needs to be considered on a case-by-case basis. There's no point in us saying that they should be refinanced by the domestic Irish banks because we need to bear in mind the reasoning behind why the banks have to sell their NPs in the first place. And we can't let the political pressure or media pressure influence on the stability of the Irish banking sector. And some of the other options that have been discussed are around the CBI setting the maximum rate increases for non-bank lenders, but I don't think that's appropriate. It's not really the role of the CBI to do that. And another option that's being discussed a lot, but the government has said that they're not going to do it is around mortgage interest relief. Um, and that might be an interesting option to consider, but again, it would be quite expensive for the exchequer. So be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah. Quite, quite costly. Um, the, uh, one of the other things that, uh, Rowena that's come up is, um, on the attendee is about, is it anticipated that the CBI will inquire from regulated firms, how they are hiring for SEER in terms of their preparedness? Do you have thought? Yeah. So again, we don't have a full framework yet. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We do have draft legislation, but in terms of the overall central bank policy around it, we don't have that yet. Well, what I would say is for SEER itself, that's going to apply to the more significant institutions to payment. So your banks, your insurers, and, and your large investment firms. Those firms are likely because of their prism rating, so their their risk rating by the central bank, they've pushed into the higher higher range of that. They're likely to have ongoing correspondence with the central bank anyway. So it may come up in general discussion with the central bank, whether the central bank will write out formally to people to ask them, you know, what have they done? I think that's unlikely. Um, you know, the central bank isn't going to ask people for their homework and then correct it for them. What they will do, though, maybe is in a few years' time is if they carry out, say, themed inspection of people's compliance with the framework, they may at that point ask people to show them how they prepared for, for SEER and how did they get their house in order. So regardless of whether the central bank may or may not ask you for that information now or in the next year or two, I think it's important to have it in place because they could ask for it down the line. Um, Seamus, lots on corporation tax on the Q&A. I mean, as you pointed out, I think you get asked this every year, uh, like it's mind-boggling. Um, I saw in the FT last week, the governor was defending the growth projections. Governor of Central Bank was, was defending the growth projections. Um, but um, some of the, U, the US economists were telling us all that we're in denial. Um, I mean, the question again is, is there is there any end to this? Um, like, do you see any impact with the, the job cuts, like another 240 job cuts from Google next door to us uh, yesterday. Are these numbers so small that they don't impact or have you any, any thoughts on whether yeah. the curve might be flattened? Yeah, I think like this is a, a, a topic that, that arose very soon. I think it was an interesting debate last week, sort of the interaction between uh, what the governor of central bank was saying. Like essentially what he was saying is that some of the growth is real. He was saying we don't take the GDP figure. So we're here for an hour and five minutes in a discussion of the macroeconomy. 
and that's the first time we've issued the three letters GDP. Like, so in Irish context, we know not to use them, that they don't, they're not representative of what's happening in the domestic economy. Uh, and I think it was unfair, and lots of things about what Paul Krugman has said about Ireland in recent years have been unfair. Uh, I, w- I would characterise his description uh, of our economic statistics as maybe casual racism would be overstepping, I suppose. It, it wasn't far off it uh, in terms of being a sort of derogatory uh, of what's happening. Like The CSO is one of the best respected statistics offices in the world. They are producing GDP figures in line with the internationally agreed standards that US companies uh, are distorting them by their activities uh, is a fault of the US system and the US companies itself. Uh, not the CSO uh, or Irish officials. Uh, from a for Paul Krugman perspective, I think he'd be better off looking at the US getting its house in order, uh, its tax rules and its treatment of multinationals, uh, rather than firing broad shots uh, across the bows of all Irish officials. And what the, the governor has said is that there is parts of this that are real. There's real employment, uh, there's real incomes, there's real activity uh, that's happening in Ireland, uh, and it is making a, a significant contribution. Now, the, the governor focused on manufacturing, uh, which I'm down here in Cork has a huge presence particularly in pharmaceuticals. But as you say, we are seeing some changes uh, in the IT sector. Uh, and the, the question you've asked, like, like, are they significant? I don't necessarily think these changes will make a significant impact on the corporation tax. I think the presence of the companies is, is still here. We really can't explain why the corporation tax has soared uh, to 23 billion last year. I think there's probably as much to do with uh, laws passed at the US House of Congress as it is to do with what's happening here. But certainly we have seen the announcement. So yesterday Google came out with their announcement of 240 uh, employees. In an overall context, it's actually pretty small. Um, it's one in 10,000 employees in Ireland. And we must remember just the rapid increase they had during the pandemic. Uh, it was about a 20,000 per capita head employment increase in that sector uh, during the pandemic. So it soared up. So yes, some of it has been reversed. Uh, difficult, obviously, for those that uh, are losing their jobs, but, but from an economic perspective, economy-wide perspective, not that significant yet. Okay. Uh, you also touched on housing, which has come up in the Q&A as well. Like, no positives from, from what you're saying. Um, yeah, you, there, there's quite a lot of commentary there around um, whether the lack of housing is impacting on FDI. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a few articles about, like, this is not an emergency. Should the government be stepping in? Should they be doing more? Should have used an emitting day fund for housing. Have you any any thoughts on this? Yeah, so <laughs> you're setting me up with my own lines there. Yeah, uh, so, so it's clear housing is a big issue, and we could get into it a bit more detail. I think, like from the perspective of FDI and inward investment, it's the rental side you're looking at. That these companies having the staff available here to do what it is they want, and we can look at Irish housing and the overall level of supply. But within that, there are very significant changes. We are losing thousands of rental properties. Uh, every quarter. Uh, these properties have been put up for sale and they're going to the owner-occupier sector. Um, and the pressures aren't there as, as acute in the owner-occupier sector. We can say that we're only building twenty-five or 30,000 houses a year, but actually more are becoming available for owner-occupiers because former rental units are being put up for sale. So the, while there is pressures in the owner-occupier sector, it's not as bad as it is in the rental sector where the pressures are most acute. As you say, companies looking to bring in staff, and I imagine that interviews they say, have you any questions for us? And one of the questions they're getting back is, well, can I find somewhere to live in this country? Um, and that is a, a big difficulty. Should the government be stepping in? Like the government is running a surplus. They're putting money into the rainy day fund, as you say. This corporation tax is pouring in. Maybe we could use some of that to build houses. And I think in other circumstances, yes, you would say that. If we had idle workers um, who would be available 
uh, to actually undertake the activity and produce the houses, but we certainly don't. We're in a labour shortage. Uh, and we're getting squeezed on all sides. Like, can we bring in workers to build houses? Where are they going to live? Uh, so it is is quite a difficult uh, circle to square. I think the government will probably look to do more, uh, and we, we could perhaps see it in terms of trying to incentivize activity in the private sector, undertaking more uh, social housing itself, getting funds into the approved housing bodies. Um, but I think the outlook for housing in Ireland remains bleak. The difficulty we have is that people can't find somewhere to live. We need more houses. Uh, and those commencement notices is not a positive picture. Not a good time. Um, just very conscious of time. Um, just try and get to one or two questions that have come in. Um, Irina, Irina or Rowena, this one's for you. In respect of the credit services director, was Aaron's decision to remove the authorization requirement for purchasers of NPLs an error or an option permitted under the directive? Irina, is that something you wanted to... Yes, so the director doesn't require credit purchasers to be authorized. The reason being that the credit servicers are the authorized entity and they are the entities that would ensure that the customer gets all their protections regarding consumer and all. And go back to the point that I touched on when I was speaking, it's because the European Parliament has said that they don't think credit purchasers need to be authorized because they're taking on a risk in purchasing the loans and they're not originating or giving any new credit. Okay. Um, as I said, constant time. Seamus, one or two quick ones for you. First one is, how, how do you see the UK economic issues impacting Ireland? Mm, like I, I think, I, again, we're down to sort of, sort of political choices. Or from an Irish perspective, the clear issue is going to happen on the island of Ireland uh, and whether... Uh, some sort of agreement can be reached in relation to Northern Ireland. The sounding seems somewhat positive, uh, but they were even more positive perhaps a week or 10 days ago uh, that agreement was close and it doesn't seem to be the case. It does sound like both sides are engaging perhaps more constructively than they were under previous uh, Conservative Party regimes in the UK, uh, but still uncertainties remain. And of course, from an Irish perspective, like the UK is such a large economy so close to us, but the performance of the UK is important for our economic um, outturns, whether it's to do with tourism, uh, lots of Irish small SMEs, their biggest market, external market would be in the UK. So the performance of the UK economy uh, is important there. And the UK economy is sort of struggling along. It's 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 not performing great. It's not dreadful. I think some of the headlines are a bit overstating the nature of the the performance of the UK economy because a lot of them are based on forecasts. So you can see no UK to be slowest growing economy in the G7. But that's only a forecast. If you actually look backwards, the data puts it sort of not quite at the bottom, not great, but not quite at the bottom. Um, and that's possibly what's going to happen over the next while as well. Um, we are seeing some turmoil in terms of labour markets and trade union disputes, uh, possibly linked to inflation, but also maybe linked to long-term issues about uh, increasing public sector pay, which might spill over into an Irish context, but I think that the government here have had a good handle on it and we have had public sector pay increases uh, over the last couple of years. So I think the key issue is the political issue can we get agreement on what to do with, with the border on the island of Ireland? And we'd be hoping the UK economy uh, performs better because it's our largest, closest neighbour. <laughs>